In our last episode, after a brief trial full of conflicting testimony, two Burger gang members, Ural Gowan and Rado Milich, were convicted of killing Ward Casey Jones. Ural was sentenced to 25 years in the penitentiary, while Milich received the death sentence. <laughs> Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deniel Chapter 27 We Have Beans, Beans, Beans The day before the Jones trial ended, a packed courtroom twenty miles to the north awaited the arrival of the sheriff and his three prisoners. Elbowing a walkway through the crowd on the courthouse lawn, Jim Pritchard escorted Ray Highland, Art Newman, and Charles Berger up the stairway of the Benton Courthouse. Pritchard, taking no chances on a rescue by the prisoners' friends, or a short circuiting of the legal process by their enemies, had special deputies along the route from the jail to the courthouse. Many of them were armed with 401 automatics. Within the courtroom, other guards watched the crowd closely. Reporters scribbled as Berger embraced Bernice, Minnie, and Charlene set against a backdrop of gangland atrocity. This tender scene made for far better reading than the argument of motions, the real business at hand. Between word pictures of the defendants, the reporters duly noted that the defense attorneys moved that the indictments be quashed. The matter having been taken under advisement, Judge Charles Miller ruled against the motion. Berger's attorneys, Robert Smith, Forrest Goodfellow, Charles Karch, and Scariel Thompson. Having failed there, on the morning of July 7th moved for a separate trial, as did Newman's attorney W.F. Dillon. The effort was to no avail. Despite the fact that Berger and Newman no longer communicated with each other except by threat and counter-threat, they would be tried together along with Highland. Before court convened on Friday, July 8th, newspapermen asked Berger his reaction to Newman's latest charge that he had planned at the Pocahontas bank robbery. Glancing at his co-defendant, who sat at the other end of the table, Berger replied, Why, that guy's crazy. I didn't even know him then. Look at him sitting over there. Anybody can tell he's crazy. Another of Newman's crazy accusations would concern the abduction and murder of Jimmy Stone, a young man from Poplar Bluff, Missouri, who disappeared from Harrisburg the night of November 30th, 1925, and whose body was found in a ditch near Halfway the next day. To his breast was pinned a note. He stole from his friends, KKK. Berger and Orb Treadway were the actual killers, according to Newman. Newman said that after the murder, Berger or Treadway stuck a cigar in the victim's mouth, then proceeded to drive the corpse around Marion to impress fellow gangsters. From his jail cell in Marion, Rado Milich told a tale eerily like Newman's, except for one detail. He said that Berger told him Ward Jones had done the actual killing. You dirty woman-killing son of a bitch! Berger snapped at the man who was causing him so much grief. You ought to be ashamed to ask for a trial. You ought to ask the people to hang you. Newman, who was seldom at a loss for adjectives of his own, replied with a subdued, That's enough of that. Despite efforts by one of his lawyers to smooth the matter over, they should thresh it out among themselves after the trial, the lawyer insisted, Berger managed to turn the blade one last time. If Newman gets out, 
I want to hang, he stated. After this outburst, he cooled down long enough to have his picture taken with Bernice and his two daughters. With the gaveling to order of the morning session, there began the tedious task of selecting a jury. Uppermost in Roy Martin's mind that morning, and in the mornings and afternoons to follow, was how each of these prospective jurors regarded the death penalty. Most said they could vote for it, but only for the most heinous crimes. That pleased Martin, of course, but he was not so pleased to learn that many of these otherwise right-thinking gentlemen had already decided to their own satisfaction the guilt or innocence of the three defendants. These men were dismissed outright. Court did not reconvene until Monday morning, July 11th. That day, four jurors were accepted. Drama was at a minimum in the sweltering courtroom, but even so, a vacant seat could be found only at rare intervals. As soon as one became available, the first in the waiting line at the foot of the stairs was ushered into the room. Having arrived on the scene before the morning rush, one clever youngster sold his seat for a dollar, a practice he continued throughout the trial. For the most part, the spectators came to stare at the defendants, especially Berger, one of the two best-dressed men in court, according to reporter W.A.S. Douglas, who covered the trial for the Baltimore Sun. His only sartorial rival was Judge Miller. Berger, aware of the attention centered upon him, tried to appear nonchalant, as though the unfortunate predicament in which he now found himself was only a thing of the moment, a bother and nothing more. Occasionally, however, his onlookers, many of them smelling none too fresh, according to Douglas, would catch him glancing in Newman's direction. This was especially true when Thompson and Dylan were up and about. Wisely, the two attorneys had placed their chairs between those of the two antagonists, and were usually seated in them. When the jury was finally selected on July 14th, the defendants appeared to relax somewhat. Highland had actually seemed relaxed throughout the mind-numbing week. On one occasion, he had asked reporters which of the courtyard trees would be his gallows. In a lull before the testimony, a reporter asked Berger his opinion of jail food. We have beans, 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 he replied in response to this rather pointless inquiry. The reporters loved it, this whistling in the dark, but that afternoon when Roy Martin began his opening statement, the tossed-off wisecracks died away. The time for levity had passed. The state would prove beyond a doubt that the killing of Joe Adams was planned by Berger and Newman, said the Franklin County State's attorney, and it would further prove that the murderers, Harry and Elmo Thomason, were driven to and from the scene of the crime by Ray Highland. Most of the afternoon was given over to Martin's presentation. After a bench conference between all the attorneys next morning, Roy Martin was instructed to call his first witness. To the stand came Jim Pritchard. When shown a photograph of a house, the sheriff testified that the dwelling shown therein was that of the late Joe Adams. Another witness, Pinckney Thomason, age 17, said that he and his brothers, Elmo and Harry, were living in Benton with Harry's sweetheart, Pearl Phelps. He stated that on the night of December 11th, Harry and Elmo were not there, but that on next morning Harry was back, having returned some time late in the night. Around 9am, Elmo and Izzy the Jew Highland arrived and had breakfast. Later, the three Thomasons and Highland drove to Marion, where the witness got out of the car. He did not see his brothers the rest of that day, nor did he know where they went. The most illuminating account during that first day of testimony came from Waddle True of West City. A proprietor of a barbecue stand whose menu included homebrew, True said that he once had some unwelcome visitors who came inquiring about a tank that had been dumped off near his place of business by some men he had taken to be hard road workers. 
On October 19th, two cars had pulled in. One was a Hupmobile driven by Art Newman. Around 11 men, all armed with machine guns, shotguns, rifles, and revolvers, got out of the two cars. Charlie Berger, wasting no time on formalities, aimed his machine gun squarely at True's vitals and ordered him to lead the way to the tank. The witness lost no time in complying. Satisfied by what he had seen, the gang leader returned to the barbecue stand, where he introduced himself to the patrons, still held there at gunpoint, and then issued an ultimatum. If True didn't deliver that discarded bit of armor by the side of the road, West City would have one less businessman. That wasn't all. True was also told to deliver two messages one to Joe Adams, and the other to the Franklin County Law. The first was simply to inform his honor that he was to be killed before the week was up. Nothing subtle or between the lines. The second was to inform the little old Franklin County Law that it was not big enough to keep him from keeping promise number one. When the courier-to-be protested that he didn't, as a rule, talk to the law, Berger jabbed the end of his machine gun into True's midsection and said, I tell you, you gotta talk to the law. Given this added inducement, True said he would. Although no one in the room laughed harder at the anecdote than Berger himself, his attorney, Bob Smith, failed to appreciate the humor. Jim Pritchard came down the aisle to maintain decorum. After horse laughs had settled into chuckles, foot shuffling, and silence, the testimony continued. As one of many guards stationed at Adams' home, True was present when Adams received a telephone call from Berger. During the conversation, he heard Adams protest that he had done nothing to incur the gangster's wrath. Somehow, this eavesdropping special deputy caught the reply. I'll show you what you've done, Berger said. We're coming to get you, and we don't care how many gods you've got. That was not the first call, nor would it be the last. The last witness of the day was Gus Adams, brother and next-door neighbor of the slain mayor. He was present, he said, when Berger, Newman, and several other armed men drove up one December day. Newman and Berger were in a Hupmobile, and the others followed in a Lincoln. Joe and I were standing near the fence between my house and his. Berger came up to us, pointed a machine gun at Joe. He said, I'm gonna kill you, you son of a bitch. Then the other men pointed their guns at us. The only one I recognized among them was Rado Milich. Afterwards, in jail here, Highland told me he was driving the Lincoln car that day. After Joe Adams appealed to the sheriff without success, he next called on his friends the Sheltons, who responded by sending a few of their men to guard the place. Their reputations, however, had preceded them, and they were soon sent on their way by Deputy Sheriff Joe Telford. Thus, this great target of a man had to rely on his friends to guard the place, and that only at intervals. Gus Adams said his home was fired upon a few days after the visit, and the day after that his phone rang. On the other end of the line was a familiar voice with a note of elation in it. Where were you yesterday? Berger asked. At home, came the terse reply. We came near getting you, didn't we? You tell that brother of yours we're gonna kick him out. And then there was the bomb blast that occurred about a month before his brother Joe was killed. Following a two-day recess, court convened on Monday morning, July 18th. In monosyllables or short, toneless sentences, Beulah Adams began her testimony, telling of a telephone conversation she had in November. When I answered the ring, a voice said, Here's a long-distance call from Harrisburg. Then another voice said, Is this Mrs. Adams? Yes. It just doesn't sound like you. It is, just the same. Is Joe there? No, he's gone to Chicago. I don't see how that is. All the depots have been guarded. 
Who is this? Wait a minute. I'll tell you. Do you have insurance? I have a little. This is Charlie Berger, and we're coming up there to kill him. Better take out all the insurance you can get. Backtracking a bit, she remembered the caller's reply, and the exchange that followed when she said Joe wasn't home. There won't be any use coming up there, will there? Me and the children are here if you want us. We don't bother women and children. I should say not. The only break in her composure came when she spoke of the killing itself, and even that was discerned only by reporters sitting at the press table. As she told the story, her lips trembled. It was on the afternoon of December 12, 1926. Joe and I were in the bedroom. He was lying on the bed when two young men came to the front door. I went to the door and the young men asked if Joe was home. I said, won't I do? They said that they were from Carl and that they wanted to see Joe in person. I called Joe and he came to the door. They handed him a letter and then they shot him. I think five or six shots were fired. Joe fell to the floor. He told me to go get a doctor. After a few minutes, he told me that he was dying. After the shots were fired, the two young men ran off the porch and my daughter, Arian, ran after them. I ran out to the yard and called her back. Before Joe died, he told me he didn't know who shot him. She later recognized Harry Thomason as one of the killers when she and Roy Martin saw him in the Marion jail. Following the testimony of Arian Adams, who added no new information, two other witnesses completed the morning's roster. Both witnesses were brought down from the Pontiac Reformatory. Alva Wilson, 19, and David Garrison, 20. Both of Mount Vernon had been sentenced in January along with others for the holdup of a filling station at Albion. Prior to their capture, they were occasionally at Shady Rest. They happened to be in the barbecue stand on the night of December 8th when, according to Garrison, he and Wilson were approached by Berger, who asked if the pair would like to make some easy money. Sure, what's doing? Garrison replied. Go to West City and call a certain man to his front porch and shoot him. With the job completed, they would each be paid the princely sum of $50. Garrison replied angrily. What do you think I am, a goddamn fool? Of the others in the barbecue stand at the time, he could recognize only Newman and Highland. Berger, he said, wore a cap and under an overcoat, a gray suit. The next time gone out, and the courtroom was almost filled. Judge Miller opened and read the sealed envelope that jury foreman Dow Fisher handed to him. Death for Berger, life imprisonment for Newman and Highland. So